All right, James chapter 5, if you want to turn to James chapter 5, we should have this lesson and then one more out of the book of James, and then we'll have concluded this study and be looking to move on to something different. And last week, we covered verses 1 through 6, where James warned them here in the Word of God about the misery of riches. And what we said last week is that you can tell through the context that what he's talking about is not rich people who were saved, but rich people who had been persecuting the church. We remember that the entire book of James is written to the strangers who were scattered abroad from the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were Jews. They were Israelites who were saved, but had been scattered abroad because they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. We read several places early on in this study from the book of Acts where it told us that everyone from Herod to the high priest to the Romans to to Saul, they were all persecuting the people who were getting saved in Jerusalem and the Jews would bear the brunt of that and many of them had to flee. They had to leave their businesses. They had to leave their homes and go somewhere to seek refuge and to seek safety. We saw at one place in the book of Acts where it says they went from house to house to see who were Christians to find the people who were on their list that they would be stoned and put to death. Well, in James 5, 1 through 6, he's talking about the rich men who have been persecuting them. Then we come to this text that we'll have tonight, just a few short verses, beginning in verse number 7. We'll read all the way through verse number 12, then we'll come back, give some context, and break it down verse by verse. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, he has just reminded them that the rich people who do not know God, who are persecuting them, he says in verse number 5, they are facing the day of slaughter, and it's saying that the Lord of hosts, in verse number 4, is coming, that God has heard the cries of those whom they have oppressed. Now he turns to the church. Now he turns to the Jews who were being persecuted, And he says, I want you to remember, therefore, to be patient. See the word therefore. It connects it to what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that God will come to judge the unjust and the wicked and that they don't have to be worried about the fact that they're being persecuted because ultimately there is a God in heaven who's going to take care of it. And whatever we face in this life, we have to remember that God is in control. And it should give us a lot of comfort and peace in our heart to know that whatever happens in this life, God is watching. There's no one who truly gets away with evil. There's no one who truly gets away with persecuting the church of God, for the Lord is watching and the Lord will defend His people. But He says, be patient therefore, and then gives the reason. Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the earthly and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Let's actually stop here, and then we'll, we'll get into the message and go to the next verses as we go along. God reminds them here to be patient and to not lose hope. And he reminds them that not only is there a God and that God is sovereign, but he points them to the exact point that the Lord is coming. The fact that he is coming 
and that his coming is drawing nigh. God would come to punish and judge their oppressors, and he also would come soon. Therefore, he tells them, be patient. Verse number 7, after he tells them, be patient unto the coming of the Lord, he says, behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. The word there for husbandman simply means farmer. It's the one who would tend to the crops, the one who would plant the seeds in the ground, and who would wait for the harvest. And what he says is that the farmer doesn't plant a seed in the ground and then get angry and frustrated if it doesn't bear fruit in the next two days. We were just telling the uh, story the other day and I was saying farmer as soon as Joe came in that uh, after we had that uh, spring celebration fellowship day where Joe uh, made all the food on the grill, we were driving to church and Sarissa said, I like farmer Joe. He made me a hot dog. So I don't know why he's Farmer Joe, but when you make people hot dogs, it's a good way to make friends. Uh, Rachel, would you pass these out to make sure Joe can have one? Just give him one of the top two copies there. Um, What was I saying? Yes, the the farmer, the husbandman. We're in James chapter 5, verse 7 through 12 for the text tonight. So what he's saying is that the farmer doesn't plant something in the ground and then get angry and give up two days later because he doesn't have the fruit. Rather, if you want a good crop of corn, you plant it into the earth, you wait for it. And what he says is he has long patience and he waits and knows that the early and the latter rain is going to have to come. And the Bible calls the seasons hot, cold, summer, winter, springtime, and harvest. In the spring we plant, and in the fall the crops come about and are harvested. And he talks to the church who's being persecuted, and he says, I want you to remember, you have to be patient, that all that is lacking in the world right now, all of the evil you see around you, all of the persecution that's coming upon the church, it is going to be taken care of, but not right now. Not through you, not through the building of social programs, but rather when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom and sets everything right. Therefore, be patient. Be patient unto the coming of the Lord and wait until God comes. And we need to be reminded of two different facts. First of all, that the Lord is coming. Jesus has promised that he will come and that he will set up his kingdom and he is going to do so. I've talked in some of the messages from Matthew 24 over the last month about the different views of the end times and how some people take the preterism view that all of those specific prophecies of Matthew 24 and 25 and Revelation were all fulfilled back in 70 AD. And some of those people who have that view, they do believe that eventually Jesus is going to come to earth, but they believe that it's up to the church to establish the kingdom and that through the church influencing the world, the world will become more and more Christian and will get better and better. And all of a sudden when the earth has basically been turned Christian by our efforts, then God will just come and it will be ready for him to step right in. Well, I do not believe that that's what the Bible teaches. And if you look around you, all you have to do is watch the news, I think, for that viewpoint to to start um, not holding water very much because it's not getting better and better. And we are called to be faithful and serve the Lord and be involved, but we're not going to fix the world. As a matter of fact... It said that there will come a, that day will not come until there come a great falling away first. The word there um, 
I'm, I don't have this in front of me, but for falling away has to do with apostasy. People will be drawing away from the Lord, persecuting the church. And God has a clock where He looks and He says, I'm not going to let evil continue unchecked forever. And in the same way that through the Tower of Babel and through the flood, God saw that the wickedness was too great and He said, I'm going to have to put a stop to it. In that same way, the Lord is coming and He's coming to set things right. They will not be made right through our efforts, but they will be made right wholly and completely when Jesus comes and when He comes to judge. Number one, the coming of Christ is drawing nigh. So not only does James say the Lord is coming, but he says in verse number eight, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Verse nine continues, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He's standing before the door. It's a metaphor that's showing he's coming. He is about to arrive. So not only is he coming, he's coming soon, and he's coming as judge. I have a lot of verses here printed off that you can look at that we'll read together here. Just a, a, a little snippet of all the verses in the Bible that talk about the fact that Jesus is coming and that shows us that the writers of the New Testament were living in an earnest expectation that Christ was coming soon. They didn't know when, but they were living with an expectation that they were in the last days. Jason, would you read Hebrews 10, 24, and 25? And then uh, Fabian, would you read Revelation 22, 12, and 20? Thank you. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Real quickly, the, the key there is as ye see the day approaching. The day referring to when the day of the Lord happens upon the world and when they cry peace and safety, but then sudden destruction, the Bible says, will come like a woman in travail who's about to give birth that begins to have those pains. And what he's saying there is not to forsake assembling together as a church, as a congregation with other believers. And he says so much the more as you see the day approaching, you know that it's coming and that it is coming quickly. You have a good deep voice. I wish I had a voice like that for preaching. I wish I had a voice like that for preaching. No. Thank you uh, for reading. The point there from Revelation 22 is that whenever Jesus is coming, he said he is coming, and he says twice in that chapter, I come quickly. So in uh, 90 AD or whenever this was, John wrote this on Patmos and then it was copied and distributed to the churches, they looked at this and they said, Jesus said, he's coming quickly. He didn't define how quick quickly is, but on God's timetable, it's coming. First Peter 4, 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The end of all things being at hand means that it's coming, that it's drawing nigh, that it's close. Revelation 3.11, the same thing. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Revelation 7.1. 
I have the wrong reference there. I don't know why I put that one in. Sorry, let's skip to the next one. John 14 and verse number 3. I think I was supposed to put Revelation 1-7, and that just says that he's coming with clouds. And we're, we, we look to that promise to say he's coming. John 14-3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. It's a sidebar, quick little side note, but Jesus sometimes said, I'm coming to the earth to judge the wicked. And here he told his church, his disciples who were saved, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And then I'm coming back to get you and to take you to where I am. Hence, we believe in the difference of the rapture, the catching away of the church and the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period to set up his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Here we see through these passages that, yes, they were in the New Testament looking for the Lord to come. And they also were looking for Him to come soon. They were living with the expectation that the end of all things were at hand. That the judgment of the Lord was drawing nigh. Jason, would you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18? I have a lot of passages here tonight that I have to, to decide. And we're going to read them all or we might just summarize. But if you can help us read that one. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It's a famous one. But just keep in mind that Paul begins the description of this event by saying, Those of us which are alive and remain. In their generation, he was saying those of us Christians which are alive and remain until the catching away of the church, this is going to happen. So they were living with that expectation that Jesus was coming and that his coming was drawing nigh and that perhaps they themselves could have been a part of it. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, so Jesus is coming. We're to be comforted by the fact he's coming. And notice that even Paul himself was living with the expectation that maybe he would be a part of the Christians which were alive and remained. In other words, a generation of Christians that will not die, but rather will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. And that's what James is reminding them of. Either the rapture, the second coming, the judgment, all of it put together. He's saying the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is coming. It's coming soon. And he's coming 
to judge. So not only will he come, but when he comes, he judges and he will come to make all things right. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I have written down, if you want to read it later, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. That's a good passage that describes the judgment of the nations. And the description is that Jesus will come with his mighty angels and before him will be gathered all nations. Jesus will sit upon the throne of his glory. The sheep will be separated from the goats. Those who do not know the Lord will be separated from those who who know him. And then uh, evidence of that shown, I believe, by how they treated the Jews during the tribulation period who were being persecuted. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says to those who who are the sheep, he says to a third group called the brethren, you did it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren. You did it unto me. To the others, he said, you did not. We know during that time period, the Jews will be persecuted. Revelation tells us that for three and a half years, they will face the worst of the persecution. And it's why Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time of Israel's trouble, where Israel is the focus, and they will be persecuted by the Antichrist and flee into the wilderness as he seeks to kill them. But then to the goats he will say, When you did it not unto one of the least of these my brethren, you did it not unto me. And it ends with him saying, The righteous will enter the kingdom, but to the goats, those who are not saved, depart from me. They will go into everlasting fire. When Jesus comes, He's not coming to be a spectator. And He's not coming to die for our sins like He did last time. He came the last time as a lamb to die. This time He's coming as a lion to conquer. And all of us should be willing to admit our own sin. That we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us, while we do acknowledge our own sin, should be able to look at the world around us and tell that things are not right. That there's too much injustice and violence and hate. And the answer to that, again, is not social programs or even our efforts, though the answer is the gospel. What will ultimately set it right is when Jesus comes to set things right and set up His kingdom. And in His kingdom will be no injustice, no evil, no sin, no murder. And what Revelation 6 addresses is that while things are beginning to take place on the earth, while the the wrath of God is beginning to be poured out, there is a group of people in heaven that are called martyrs. A martyr is someone who is killed for the sake of Jesus Christ. And all throughout history, even in the New Testament, there in the very first century church, we see tons of people where the the church was growing. People were getting saved. It was spreading like a wildfire. Saved, baptized, added to the church, gathering. And all kinds of people had all kinds of motives for why they did not want the church to grow. And they said through the legal means of the government, you cannot be a Christian. And if you are, you will pay the price. And Christians were put in front of lions in the Roman Colosseum while people watched for their own pleasure. And they were torn apart and killed. Some were taken and burned at the stake like William Tyndale for the crime of defying the Pope and translating the Bible into English. We stand here tonight in large part on the backs of the martyrs who died for the cause of Jesus Christ. 
And some people died for translating the Bible into our language so that we could have it. And some people clung to and and died for obeying the little patches of Scripture that they had available to them. And it should be convicting for us to remember that some paid the ultimate price to serve Christ. And that maybe in our American Christianity... We should pick up one of the seven copies of the Bibles and commentaries or, the, or, or access it on our phone and actually read it. For other people have died for it and died for the cause of Jesus Christ. The Trail of Blood and, and Fox's Book of Martyrs you can read and, and, and have the documentation of just how many people paid the price. And it's not just a historical thing. But as we saw just last year, as the United States withdrew their troops from Afghanistan, they went to get the Christians. And some people said they went door to door and they grabbed people's cell phones and they searched for the Bible app. And if you had the Bible app on your phone, they would put you to death or do things to your family that we wouldn't want to talk about. But we must remember that God, and that's part of what what James calls their, their memory to in a moment, is he says, remember the prophets. Remember Job. Remember the patience they had. And many of the prophets of the Lord were put to death and were killed. And we've been preaching on the Pharisees on Sunday mornings. And Jesus looked at the Pharisees and He said, Your fathers killed the prophets. And those sepulchers that you made for them, your fathers killed them. And you decorate their tombs, but you have the same heart that your fathers had. Hence the fact you're about to put me to death. And I'm better than all the prophets. I'm the God the prophets pointed to. But we must remember that as we read these stories, or as we read the story of John the Baptist who stood up for the Lord, and he preached truth, and he looked at at Herod and he told him he was living in sin, and that he needed to make it right, and he was thrown in jail, and eventually his head taken off because he preached the truth. But that doesn't mean that he lost. That doesn't mean that Herod won. King Herod at a later date in the book of Acts, was standing in his court. And within, when Herod spoke, they said, He sounds like one of the gods. He's speaking as if he were a god. And the Bible says, Because he gave not God the glory, that God smote his body and he turned to worms in front of them. And not only is John the Baptist in heaven, while Herod no doubt showed every implication that he died in his sins and is in the lake of fire, But in heaven there's a special place given for those who paid the price and died for Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us all the way from the book of Genesis when Cain murdered his brother Abel, God came around to talk to Cain and He said, The blood of your innocent brother is crying out to the grave to me. God hears the cries of the oppressed, the brokenhearted, And innocent blood cries out from the grave and God holds a special place in heaven for those who were willing to die for His name as He had died for their salvation. And be it the national sin of abortion or martyrs in other countries, innocent blood cries out from the grave to God. And God will deal with that one day on Judgment Day. Revelation 6 and verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They were slain. Why? For the word of God. They were martyrs. And where were they? They were under the altar. They had a special place separated from other people in heaven near to where God was 
where they were honored for paying the price. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So the same sentiment. How long, O Lord, when will you avenge this evil? And it was told to them, just a little season. God's coming. He's going to judge things and make them right. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 3. Revelation 19. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments. For He hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of His servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. The name of God will be praised when He judges sin, just as much as it is praised when His mercy is actually received. But what is part of what God will do in the end times? He will avenge the blood of His servants. And what James reminds his readers is what we should remind ourselves. Be patient. Don't be envious of evildoers. Don't look and say, oh, they live in sin and continue on without God's judgment. I wish I got to do all of the fleshly things that they do and God's not even judging them. No, God says, don't be jealous of them. In the first place, have the heart of God, which is praying that they would repent and escape judgment. But then remember the end of those that run from God and rebel. Remember what is coming. Remember that God will set things right. They would be reminded as they read this, these verses to come. Verse 10, Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. They would be reminded here about the prophets. Remember, they're Jews. They know the Old Testament well. They know that the major and the minor prophets, all the way through Isaiah and Jeremiah, Hosea and Zephaniah, all those at the end of your Old Testament, they preached to a rebellious Israel. They went and preached and declared and cried out and cried out and said, Judgment is coming! Repent! And oftentimes they, the people did not repent. They hated them. They reviled them. They threw Jeremiah into the stocks and they beat him. It said that they killed Isaiah for what he preached. But he said, look to them and see that they were an example of suffering affliction and of patience. They were willing to suffer the affliction that God called them to go through. And they were patient, knowing that the promise was coming. But the prophets died without having received the promise just yet. So too would the writers of James die before the Lord actually came. So too we may also die before Jesus comes. But the promise is not an earthly one, it is an eternal one. 
Therefore we do not hope in this world. We know that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and we're patient. We wait for God to make things right. Not because we know for sure He's coming immediately, but even if we live another 30, 40, 50 years and then die, He still is coming soon. It's still drawing nigh. He's still coming. The judge is still standing at the door to judge the world of sin and to set things right. As the disciples had to be reminded over and over again that the kingdom of Christ was to come in the future and they were to focus on the Great Commission, so too we must remember whenever it comes, the coming of the Lord is drawing nigh and the promise that He makes is an eternal one, not an earthly one. Therefore, be patient and wait for it. Number two, we see the example of Job. The example of Job. Let me back up here for just a moment. Verse 9, he begins by saying, Grudge not one against another, lest ye be condemned. Here is one of two places in the text tonight that he reminds them that since the Lord is coming, our behavior should reflect the fact that Christ is coming and that we live for eternity and not for this earth. The word therefore grudge in verse 9 means sigh, murmur, groan. Hence it's saying grumble or complain. So he says don't complain one against another. Don't fight. Why? Because the judge is coming. He's standing at the door. You don't want to be found in condemnation. Verse 10, he talks about the prophets and how they endured unto the coming of the Lord. Hebrews 11 13 through 16. Would someone like to read that for me? Rachel, would you like to take a turn? Would you read those few verses out loud? We're on the second page here. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So in verse 13, when he says they all died in faith, he's talking about the beginning of Hebrews, about Abraham and Isaac and the Old Testament saints. They died in faith not having yet received all of the promises that God gave. They hadn't received them yet, but they saw them afar off. They were persuaded of them. They believed by faith that everything that God said was going to happen. What was one of the main promises ever since Genesis chapter 3? That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent after the serpent had bruised his heel. It was the promise of the Messiah. They looked for it. They said, God said, it's coming. It's going to come soon. And when they died, they were no less convinced that it was coming, for they had already received it and believed it, not because they knew they were going to see it, but because they knew that God had said it. That's the Old Testament example. He's saying, remember the prophets. They suffered affliction, and they were patient. They waited. Then he gives reference to the Old Testament Bible character of Job. Here is the only time in all of the New Testament that Job is mentioned, and only two times outside of the book of Job itself that Job is actually mentioned. We'll look at the other one here in just 
a moment. Let's actually turn to Job chapter 1. We won't go through the story of Job, but we do know what happened. We know how much Job lost. We know that in Job chapter 1, the devil came before the Lord, got permission for the hedge of protection that surrounded Job to be peeled back, and he attacked Job. And there's just so many things that, that we could spend so much time in that book, and we should do that someday. But the devil was aware. Hast thou not made an hedge about Job? He wanted to attack Job. He wanted to attack his family. But he knew that he could not. For when he tried, there was a literal hedge of protection about Job that kept the devil from attacking him and his family. And oh, how we should strive to be in the will of God and how we should fear running from God. For it's one thing, like Job, for God to say, I'm sovereignly in control and I'm going to peel back that hedge a little bit and allow the devil to come in a little but not too much. But it's another thing to get so far outside of the will of God that God says, you are in rebellion to me and as part of your punishment, I'm going to remove the hedge. And when that happens, we're left vulnerable to the devil and to his attacks. Well, not only, you know the story, not only did he lose his herds and his houses, but he lost his children, every single one of them. Job 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. No wonder that James would write and would say, You have heard of the patience of Job. Remember his example. And look at that man who was patient enough to suffer that affliction and not turn against God, but still strive to be a man of integrity and to be his servant. And Job said, why would I curse the name of the Lord? He said, when I came out of my mother's womb, I wasn't wearing any clothes. I didn't bring any money with me. I didn't have any possessions. I came in with nothing. And the day that I die, I will go into eternity with nothing. Therefore, everything I have in this life was God's that He gave me. And it's God's decision to take it away if He wants to. And I will simply bless His name. We praise Him when we win. We praise Him when we lose. When He gives, when He takes away, we should say like Job, Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is good, and He's good that He lets me have anything in this life. I don't deserve any of it. Chapter 2 and verse 7. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all, and he sat down among the ashes. Boy, you want to be depressed? You want to be in a, in a state of mind to lash out? Some of us, we could laugh at each other. If you're married to each other, especially, lack of sleep, lack of food can lead to, to you not being yourself, to some interactions you wouldn't normally have. But Job was suffering from the loss of his wealth, the loss of his children, and now he sits with horrible boys, boils from his foot all the way up to his head. And he has to take a broken piece of pottery to scrape away. Okay, you get the picture of what was happening. Verse 9, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. We could vilify her, but I don't think the text does. I don't think Job does. 
She lost her children too. She was going through a terrible time. Verse 10, But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speak. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Wow. So that's why he says in James chapter 5 and verse number 11. Okay, let's read that again here together. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Of tender mercy. What gave Job patience? Okay, let's go to Job chapter 19. There's a couple of texts that I'm simply going to refer you to that you can read later that are interesting, but I want to go ahead and read this one, and we're going to be done by 8 o'clock, which is always my goal on Wednesdays, and we usually hit exactly. Job chapter 19 and verse number 21. Have pity upon me, have pity upon ye, O ye my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God, and are not satisfied with my flesh? If you know the story of Job, a whole lot of what happens is he has three friends who come around and they say, Job, we're your friends, so we just came to hang out with you during this time. But what we wanted you to know is we thought about it and we've seen how bad you've been punished and we've come to the conclusion that there's no way you would be punished this bad unless your sin was worse than everybody else's sin. So we know you have sin, you need to repent of it and then maybe your suffering will go away. It wasn't right. It wasn't from God. God came in the end and persecuted them and, and uh, corrected them. And in the beginning, God said to the devil himself that Job was the best example of integrity that there was in all the earth. Then Job cries out in verse 23, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Some of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, you'll see, I'll connect these to a lot of sermons. Job literally cries out, I wish that my words were printed in a book. They're printed in a book right in front of me tonight. And God took his very words and graved them with an iron pen and led in the rock of the word of God that will last for all time. Look at verse 25. This is a confidence that can give you patience through trials and affliction. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job is the oldest book that best we can tell that is recorded. One of the oldest stories in all of the Bible. If you look in Genesis, there's a one Job listed in a genealogy, but he's a different one. He lived in a different time period and country than this Job did. But somehow throughout this book, there's all kinds of revelation from God. And every generation has had enough light and revelation from God to repent. For God dealt differently with them. God gave them truth in different ways. But Job said, I know my Redeemer is alive. In other words, I was lost, but someone has redeemed me. Someone will be my Savior. I know that He's alive. And He says, I know that at the latter days... 
of the earth. At the latter days of time, my Redeemer is going to come to this earth and physically stand upon it. And this will be at a way future date when my body has died and been consumed with worms and laid in a grave. But I know that when my Redeemer, who is alive, stands at the latter days upon this earth, my body's coming up out of the grave. I'm going to have a new one, and I will be in my flesh, and I'm going to see Him eyes to eyes, face to face. And let's go back to James chapter 5 and wrap up. He tells them, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Remember, he says, God's coming. Remember, he's going to set things right. His coming draws nigh. The judge stands at the door. Therefore, be patient for the judgment of God, just like the farmer who is patient for the crop. And then he reminds him, you've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is pitiful and of tender mercy. And what happened in the end of the story of Job that was his chosen example? God came. God vindicated him. God gave him more than he ever had before. And we should have the faith of Job and the faith that he called them to have to be patient, suffer affliction, do the will of God, and know that the latter days are coming when the judge comes, when he'll set everything right, and it's going to happen. And if we never see that while we're alive, like Job did, and like Hebrews 11 said, they looked forward and they saw it by faith. If you want to jot down and read this later, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 20, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 20, the only other time in all of the Bible that mentions Job other than the book of Job and James chapter 5. And what he says is that the sin of the land is so bad that God is not going to spare the land even if Noah... Daniel or Job were in that land. So he points to Noah, Daniel, and Job as towering examples of standing tall through times of persecution and also of helping deliver others around them. Noah stood against the world and delivered his family. Daniel went to the lion's den. He, he was in the beginning with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all banded together and helped one another stand up for what was right and obey the word of the Lord. And he refused to stop praying. Job also stood tall through trials but he helped be a deliverer in the beginning of the book for his children as he prayed and made sacrifices for them. He was a mediator there. And then in the end of the book, he prayed for his friends. And his friends were able to be have the blessing of God and judgment spared too. So through Job, through Noah, through Daniel, so through all these other examples, may we be patient through trials, stand tall, and ask God to help us deliver others around us like our family, like our friends like our souls that we could reach. Number three, and we're done, there is a reminder to live with character. James 5.12 But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. The basic content, what he's telling them in that verse, we're going to launch straight into this Sunday in our message from Matthew 23, 
where the Pharisees had implemented a system of, well, swear by the altar, okay, you can break your word, but if you swear by the gold that's on the altar, now you have to keep your word. And there's a passage, you could jot this down as well, we'll cover it Sunday, Matthew 5, 33-37. Matthew 5, 33-37, where Jesus says these exact words that James is no doubt quoting here, when Jesus says, let your yea be yea and your nay nay. Don't swear by heaven, don't swear by the earth, or any else. And what Jesus said is be a man of, of character, be a woman of character, keep your word. You shouldn't have to say, I swear by God and his throne that I will do this. If you say, I do this, what he's saying with yay, yay, and nay, nay is when you say yes, let it mean yes. When you say no, let it mean no. And then he says, why lest ye fall into condemnation? Lest ye fall into condemnation. The word there for condemnation means acting under a feigned part. Deceit. Five times it's being used in the King James as hypocrisy. Once as condemnation and once as dissimulation, which means pretense. So here's what he's saying. In these last days, remember Christ is coming. Remember the judge is at the door. Don't be found a hypocrite. Christ is coming. The same thing that he told them in verse 9. Grudge not, don't grumble against one another. Why? For the judge is coming. He stands at the door. So some people say this verse seems a little bit disjointed when why right here in the middle of all this teaching about Jesus coming and trials, why does he say, hey, remember to keep your word. Hey, remember not to to go back and forth and argue and complain one with another. I believe it's because he's telling them Jesus is coming. Keep that in mind. Correct what you're doing wrong and live with the earnest expectation that Jesus is coming. When I know Jesus is coming, that should be a purifying doctrine. Meaning, He's coming. He's coming soon. Let me get my life right. Let my behavior actually reflect that of a Christian. Luke 12, 40. Be ready. You don't know when Jesus is coming. 1 John 2, 28. Abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at him before his coming. Okay? He's going to come. He's going to appear. Don't be ashamed when he comes. Live like a Christian. Live with character. Second Peter 3.11, after talking about the fact that the earth will be burned with fire, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holiness and conversation? I believe he's reminding them against things we see implications of that they were struggling with. Within the church, they were having strife and conflict, and they were falling into that Pharisee system of oaths and not keeping your word. He said, hey, remember what Jesus said. Remember He's coming soon. Clean up your behavior. What manner of persons ought you to be when we remember that Jesus is coming. That's all that I have for us tonight. I love this book of James and the, the little practical things that it gives us. And so hopefully we take this and whatever persecution we may face, let's remember that God's coming. Let's remember to be patient. Look at the Bible examples and say, Lord, I trust you with setting everything right because I know I sure can't. I can't make anybody change. I can't pay back evil people. That's not my job anyway. But I sure know that God can, and I sure know I can trust Him with it. We're over time now tonight, but did anyone have a question or a thought or prayer request? Anything you'd like to add before we're dismissed here tonight?
Doesn't look like it. Thank you all for being here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless us as we go our separate ways. Bring us back again here Sunday and give us a good time of of a gathering as a church body. We love you. We pray that you'd answer all the requests that we gave earlier and that your Holy Spirit would work in this congregation. Help us to live with the earnest expectation you're coming again to make things right and to make all things new and help us live for you and live as we should. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.